Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballot. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Nathan Connolly. This month, President Trump signed an executive order that drastically reduced the size of two new national monuments in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. The families and communities of Utah know and love this land the best, and you know the best how to take care of your land. Your timeless bond with the outdoors should not be replaced with the whims of regulators thousands and thousands of miles away. They don't know your land, and truly, they don't care for your land like you do. The move sparked protests from environmentalists and local tribes who fear that these lands will now be opened to coal and uranium mining. These national monuments were created by President Obama in part to preserve the remains of Native civilizations in the American West. But in the 20th century, public lands were often set aside because they were thought to represent wilderness, lands untouched by humans. President Johnson said as much when he signed the Wilderness Act of 1964. The Wilderness Bill preserves for our posterity, for all time to come, nine million acres of this vast continent in their original and unchanging beauty and wonder. The idea was that by keeping these lands off-limits, we'd preserve an untrammeled wilderness, just like what European settlers and explorers might have encountered. But if you actually read those settlers' descriptions of the American landscape, you quickly learn that the land was hardly wild or untouched. Take, for instance, New England. The first real reports we have are from Verrazzano in the 1520s. This is Charles Mann. He collected accounts of early settlers in his book, 1493. He says this report by Giovanni de Varenzano suggests that in southern New England, there weren't many natural forests. He marched for, quote, many leagues across the landscape and saw nothing but cornfields, farms, and so forth, with the trees just a distant line in, in the horizon. The Europeans couldn't even find the forest, and this is in the 1520s. That's right, Nathan. And when Europeans did find them, the forest didn't look particularly primeval. Here's how an English colonist named Thomas Morton described what he saw in Massachusetts in the early 1600s. The savages, which was, of course, his way of describing the native people, are accustomed to set fire of the country in all places where they come and to burn it twice a year at the spring and the fall of leaves. The reason that moves them to do so is because otherwise it'd be so overgrown with underweeds that the people would not be able in any wise to pass through the country out of a beaten path. And this custom of firing the country is the means to make it passable. And by that means, the trees grow here and there like our parks and make the country very beautiful and commodious. So New England's forests used to look like parks? (laughs) Believe it or not, they did. Native Americans set fires that cleared the undergrowth, but it left older trees intact. 
And Mann has another account by a Dutchman named Adrian van der Donk that shows how widespread this was. Such a fire is a splendid sight when one sails on the rivers, by that he meant the Hudson and Mohawk. Rivers at night, while the forest is ablaze in both banks. Fires and flames are seen everywhere on all sides. A delightful scene to look on from afar. I mean, it was like a light show for him, right? You know, boats would go up the Hudson River. You know, Dutch people would presumably sit on the deck and, you know, drink some beer and watch the show. In fact... Mann says you'd be hard-pressed to find any part of the New England landscape that wasn't altered by Native people. Now, you have to remember Native people were here for 15,000 years. And so if your question is, did sometime in those 15,000 years the forests in X place get cut down or managed or burned or manipulated in some way, the answer is everywhere, which over time means that practically nothing is, you know, quote, wilderness. So if the American wilderness didn't really exist even 500 years ago, how do so many of us come to believe in it today? Well, Nathan, that sure sounds like a setup question for a backstory episode if I've ever heard one. With the fight over Bears Ears National Monument in the news, we're revisiting an earlier backstory episode on American attitudes towards the wilderness. We'll hear about how 19th century fears of the wilderness were exploited by the Department of War. We have the story of two men who went head-to-head over the value of the wilderness 50 years later, and how the creators of one national park dealt with the inconvenient truth that there were people living in the woods that they wanted to protect. We'll also tell you how the Wilderness Act that President Johnson signed came into being in the first place. But first, let's return to journalist Charles Mann. He says our image of overgrown, primeval-looking forests isn't completely wrong. In fact, a lot of those New England forests look like that now and have for several centuries. But Mann says those forests are the product of human hands. You see, right around the same time the first European settlers were writing about the park-like woods of New England, the people who maintained those woods were dying. Over the period of a few decades, some 90% of New England's native population was wiped out by old-world diseases. Mann spoke with Backstory host Peter Oniff in 2014. He says when the Pilgrims famously arrived in 1620, they encountered a landscape that was on the brink of dramatic change. What they saw was this agricultural landscape. They saw farm fields. They saw skeletons of bodies all over the place. And so what they settled in was an emptied, mm-hmm. not an empty, mm-hmm. an emptied landscape. You know, it was, a, it was a tragedy. It was a cemetery. Right. Well, what happens is they move into these cleared areas. Mm-hmm. Something like the first 50 English settlements um, in New England were on top of abandoned native villages. Right. So that and erases so those villages completely. In yeah, their, erases yeah. Those, those villages. And then, of course, the people who come 15 years later don't even really know that there was a village there to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the landscape around them changes as well. And uh, part of it, they clear and then they plant, you know, a, a whole field of wheat or, or something like that. And then the stuff that they don't clear, they leave alone. Right. Um, they don't burn And the result is that the undergrowth grows up and it becomes thick and dark 
and, and entangled. And you get this kind of bifurcated landscape that's much more similar to what they would have been familiar with in England. So in New England, I mean, the name is right. They literally did their best to recreate the landscape they were familiar with. And as they erased evidence of prior management and occupancy, then there's a collective amnesia or forgetfulness uh, about what the first settlers had right in front of their eyes. They could see this. They moved to these areas that were open because they had been cultivated. Absolutely. Until by the 19th century, you had this curious thing where Thoreau, right, who we think of as as Mr. Wilderness, right, Right, in the 1850s, 1857, I think. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how when he goes into the Maine woods in the, that wonderful three-part book, Into the Maine Woods, he actually can't go into the woods for large sections because the undergrowth hasn't been burned, and it's so thick that it's impassable. So what they do, well, here's the report. The walking was worse than ever <laughs> because of the fallen timber. The fallen trees were so numerous that for long distances, the route was through a succession of small yards where we climbed over fences as high as our heads. Now, think about this. He's going into the main woods. He actually can't walk in the woods. He has to go from one farmland to the next <laughs> right. with the woods over here. That's wonderful. I mean, which yeah. shows you how much the landscapes. You have John Smith, who's reporting, you know, when he goes to a place like Jamestown in, in uh, you know, about 1610, that the woods are so open that he can ride through them at a gallop. And he was so mm-hmm. crazy, he may actually have done that. <laughs> and here, Thoreau can't even walk through the woods in yeah. 1850. So you see a huge ecological transformation has taken place. So, uh, in a way, our modern notions of wilderness really focus on what we take to be untouched places, and we want to cherish these as if they were a route back into a deep past, Right. when it might be more appropriate to have a better understanding of what has happened to the lands we live on. You know, Thoreau, and again, in the Maine woods, keeps talking about the universal dense evergreen forest. <laughs> and he took that as this timeless yeah. thing that had you know, always been there. He didn't know better. I mean, we have the advantage of uh, 100 years of historical research. And I don't want to diss Thoreau, who's a remarkable <laughs> guy in every way. But he got that part wrong. Yeah, but now we are becoming more aware of uh, changes in the land, uh, that we have more of an historical consciousness. And there is a sense that what was... Once there, if we could save some remnant of it, needs to be preserved. Uh, How do modern ideas about wilderness relate to the the first images that you've been studying of people who settled in New England? Well, the modern images of wilderness relate, you know, in a very uneasy way to what was actually here. Mm -hmm. Many, many, many of American ecosystems evolved for thousands of years in the presence of native fire. Right, right. And a lot of the environmental problems we're having in the West relate to the fact that when we start managing them a la Smokey the Bear, mm-hmm. no fire. No fire. We end up creating a kind of ecosystem that hasn't been seen on the continent for a really, really long time. And something unnatural, quote-unquote, you know, and new something distinctively modern. And so when we think we're recovering the past, what we're actually doing is creating something that hasn't been there for a very, very long time. Charles Mann is the author of 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. He also wrote the bestseller, 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. He spoke to us from the wilds of New England Public Radio. 
We're going to turn now to an event that was entirely man-made, the American Civil War. By 1864, Americans were mired in the third year of conflict, one that spilled across cities and farmland. As the Union Army marched south through the Shenandoah Valley and then through Georgia, soldiers took whatever crops they could to feed their armies and destroyed the rest. This slash-and-burn strategy terrified the White South. Their farms, their barns, their fences, those were things they had built to beat back the wilderness. And if their property was destroyed, the wilderness might soon reassert itself. Yeah, this was the threat. This is historian Lisa Brady. I talked to her about the threat of wilderness, not only on the southern landscape, but also on the psyche of southern whites. The southern people, whether they supported the Confederacy or not, had spent generations in managing and trying to exert some kind of control over their ecosystems, over their environments. And um, to take that control away was to throw them back into a state of wilderness. And so these battles where Grant in Mississippi and Sheridan in the Shenandoah and Sherman in Georgia and the Carolinas went through and destroyed agricultural implements and sort of laid bare the, the agricultural landscapes, they were taking civilized landscapes and making them into wildernesses. And so that's, um, that's the language they used. This was the threat of taking southern civilization and throwing it back into an uncivilized wild state. Do all the damage to railroads and crops you can. Carry off stock of all descriptions so as to prevent further planting. If the war is to last another year, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. How literally should we take this? I mean, how much did they really convert this bucolic landscape to a wilderness, Lisa? Well, I think that there is certainly some hyperbole on the... um, the side of Sheridan and Grant. And I would suggest there are even some hyperbolic statements on the part of those who experienced the campaigns, some of the Southerners. But I don't think we can dismiss their views entirely, especially not those who were the the victims of it. Um, There are some really fantastic letter and diary entries by some of those who lived in the Shenandoah Valley who talked about how Sheridan had, in fact, turned this lovely, gorgeous, fertile valley into a wasteland. And so, again, whether or not it was materially turned into um, a place where nothing could grow, which I think we could demonstrably say was not true, um, psychologically, it had that impact. Now, I can't help but notice that uh, Yosemite and Yellowstone are a long way from the Shenandoah Valley. But it's also in 1864 that the same Republican regime that's prosecuting the American Civil War also makes a big move toward protecting wilderness. Can you tell us about that and what the connection is, you think? Yeah. um, Here we have incredible devastation, and there is a sense that humans are capable of doing some pretty horrible things. And that needs to be offset by humans doing some pretty wonderful things. And in my sense of reading the letters and the official reports and some of the political tracts and that sort of thing, it's that they see that protecting nature, and in particular these grand landscapes of the West that are unique to the United States, things that will bring um, some kind of awe to visitors to the United States, uh, I think that that is something that the Republicans 
want to counterbalance the um, the war with. So does the definition of wilderness somehow change during the war then, that it becomes it goes from being something that was already there, just given by nature, to something that humans can create themselves if they're not careful. And so we, you need to compensate for humans' power by preserving something that's sort of beyond humans' power to create. I think that's a perfect way of stating it. And then what we see in the West is actually not wilderness, but sublime nature. They don't actually apply wilderness to it because wilderness in the 1860s still does have that negative connotation. They talk about it as this sublime nature. Ah. Um, wilderness really comes into something that has a positive notation to it in later years, in the 1870s, 1880s. Lisa Brady is a historian at Boise State University. She's the author of War Upon the Land, Military Strategy and the Transformation of Southern Landscapes During the American Civil War. In 1906, an enormous earthquake rocked San Francisco. Much of the city was reduced to rubble. But the rebuilding effort that followed offered city officials the opportunity to realize a long-time goal, a new and expanded water supply. For years, city officials had been wanting to dam the Hetch Hetchy Valley, 167 miles away in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The valley, they thought, would be an ideal place for a reservoir that would provide water for the city forever. But there was a catch. Hetch Hetchy was part of Yosemite National Park, which meant that it was federal property. And so San Francisco couldn't do anything to the valley without congressional approval. Because Congress was involved, to dam or not to dam sparked a seven-year debate that was closely watched by Americans across the country. City officials had the support of Gifford Pinchot, head of the U.S. Forest Service. He was a close ally of President Teddy Roosevelt. But the plan met fierce resistance from legendary naturalist John Muir, who had been instrumental in making his beloved Yosemite a national park. He wasn't going to give up Hetch Hetchy without a fight. Char Miller is a historian who has written about this battle. He says Muir knew his best hope was to win over the American public, much of which had never heard of this place. For Muir, the case was easily made through religious language language that he knew his audience would understand straight out of the Bible, even though couched in more romantic terms. And from Muir's point of view, what made mountains so important was their capacity to humble us. So to go up into the mountains is to get close to God. To get close to God is to realize how small we are. To realize how small we are would lead us to go back down into our valleys and lowlands um, and, and fight for the preservation of that experience. And so his language was couched in not only the aesthetics and the beauty, but the subtext is, you are fighting for God. Well, if you're fighting for God, the other side has to be the devil. <laughs> for instance, when we think about the religious language, listen to this framing of John Muir in a chapter he wrote in a book published in 1911 as part of the opposition to Hetch Hetchy. These temple destroyers, 
devotees of ravaging commercialism seem to have a perfect contempt for nature, and instead of lifting their eyes to the god of the mountains, lift them to the almighty dollar. Damn Hetch Hetchy, as well damn for water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches, for no holier temple has ever been consecrated by the heart of man. Wow. It's powerful oh, stuff. yeah. And so imagine reading this yeah. um, in the Century Magazine in New York City. And, you know, if you've got an ounce of sensibility in you, you are enraged because you've never seen Hetch Hetchy. You don't understand it. Who cares about San Francisco? And you've got plenty uh, of water. And you've got plenty of water. So this is not your struggle, but John Muir has made it your struggle because of the language of divinity framed around a political calculation that says, act, fight now. So I guess we'll put Muir in the green trunks. That would uh, make sense. Uh, Weighing in at 190 pounds in the black trunks is Gifford Pinchot. Where was he coming from? The classic antagonist to Muir in the case about Hetch Hetchy is always framed around Gifford Pinchot, who, like Muir, was tall, spare, thin, um, deeply in love with nature, But his love of nature and its aesthetic power and also spiritual um, ethos, which he felt deeply as well, is tempered by a political sensibility that part of the calculation that any land manager has to follow is that these lands produce value for communities. Some of that can be aesthetic, but if you're going to have national forest and reservoirs and the like, they need to have economic value for the communities that surround them and that make use of them, or otherwise you'll never get what you want. That is to say, people who don't see value in these landscapes are going to devalue them and thus not support them. Use it or lose it would be Pinchot's model, really. Yeah, I think if you did not use it, then the publics that surrounded it would say, you can't have it anymore. All right, I understand where Muir and Pinchot are coming from, but who are they appealing to? Describe some of the supporters for each. So if you think about Muir's brilliant, evocative rhetoric, who's reading that? Well, it turns out that much of New York, Philadelphia, Boston, the huge population base in the United States, and including the Great Lakes cities as well, these big industrial places where no one has seen anything like Yosemite is transfixed by his language about this landscape. And they start to go out as tourists. I mean, he's, he's really a kind of barker for, for Yosemite in a way. Um, Pinchot, whose language is not this divine flowery um, rhetoric in the ways that it is for Muir, speaks to the rising middle and upper middle classes in those same cities who are also reading Muir about the prospects for a more progressive society that would benefit enormously from those who have expertise like Pinchot and like many of his readers and who want the United States to be a better place than it is. And so you could read Muir and Pinchot. You could be the same person reading them (laughs) and be pulled by both of them because both of these men are offering dreams of a future that are pretty beguiling. And so much of this is about an urbanized population drawing off of its own... um, industrial energy that's now beginning to think about landscapes in ways they probably had never thought about before. Well, how is this resolved? The dam was built. 
The water is still impounded. San Francisco is wet as a consequence of Hetch Hetchy disappearing under all of that volume of water. Um, and so in 1913, the debate reaches its crescendo. Um, in the end, Congress voted in a really interesting way to enact um, legislation that would provide money to build the O'Shaughnessy Dam. And the interesting way in which Congress acted, you can look at the votes, and the farther away the voter was from Hetch Hetchy physically, the more likely they were to vote with John Muir. The closer they were to Hetch Hetchy physically, the more likely they were to vote with Gifford Pinchot and those who were promoting the Hetch Hetchy Dam, because the West saw its interests as allied with those of California. If San Francisco could do this, maybe Denver could do the same thing. So this was the opposite of not in my backyard, which we're so familiar with today. Oh, yeah. No, it's exactly the opposite. It's, just, it's, it's kind of funny, actually, that the first great battle it not only goes national, but it meant that it was about somebody else's water right. that you were happy to either give away or take. And yet it also helped shape the dynamic that in time would say, uh, wait a second, maybe we don't want these dams, plural, because every river in California and most in the West have been dammed subsequently. Um, and, and part of what we're looking at is the first shot across the bow, which says maybe not all development is good. And what we've slowly come to over the last 100 plus years is figuring out what that actually means. Char Miller is the director of the Environmental Analysis Program at Pomona College. He's the author of Seeking the Greatest Good, The Conservation Legacy of Gifford Pinchot. We just heard how Gifford Pinchot, who was the head of the Forest Service, wanted to conserve nature so that we could use it, use it to our advantage. But the line between conservation and development is always changing. And as Miller mentioned with the dams, our effort to control the wilderness doesn't always work out the way we want it to. Yeah, Brian, that reminds me of efforts to control, in many ways, the spine of our country, the Mississippi mm. River. It's neither the east nor the west. Matter of fact, we use it as the divider between the trans-Mississippi West. But the right. Mississippi River, extending the entire breadth, width of the United States, has been the object of a lot of fascination and, in the 20th century, lots of effort to try to control it. Now, there was mm -hmm. a massive flood in 1927. So unlike right. maybe some of these other things that are growing out of just sort of an idealistic vision of how we would make the most of this sublime scenery, the Mississippi River was refusing to be sublime uh, and had a flood that inundated 27,000 square miles and displaced over half a million right. people. Right. And so the United States and the Flood Control Act of 1928 which is the largest public works appropriation in the history of the country. They decided to try to contain, control Old Man River. And <laughs> they worked for decades and decades, and people have 
actually made mm. things worse. The 1973 flood, experts say, was really the result of human efforts to contain it. 1993, the most costly Mississippi flood in U.S. history. And then Katrina, which is not the Mississippi River, but that big basin. There's an instance where we should have learned over many decades, the, in some ways, the futility of trying to completely manage a resource, maybe making things worse than they would have been just naturally. Well, and that does take us back to the forest, Said, uh, If we look at this massive forest fire in California, there are many who attribute the size of the fire to the government's no-burn policy, which has allowed basically 100 years of brush to build up so that when a fire is sparked by lightning, for instance, it's going to be much larger. There are other factors, of course, like climate change. Mm. Uh, But this effort uh, by humans uh, to control nature is one that uh, I I think uh, has created Great benefits for many of us, but maybe more than we can handle, at least perfectly. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think that's right, and and it's sad to say too that even the costs of these natural and, and oftentimes unnatural disasters are not equally borne. Right? I mean, really, going back to you know the 1990s, there was a, a spate of reports about how folks who were in California under these you know very clear fire zones and within the path of these you know wildfires could benefit handsomely from insurance payouts, or they could have infrastructure that would help them rebuild. Oftentimes, after some of the worst kinds of incidences in places like Malibu and so forth. Whereas in New Orleans, the, the water overflow there is obviously adversely affecting folks in the Ninth Ward that have, has a lot to do with not just the Army Corps of Engineers, but the longer history of how chronically under-supported neighborhoods are not going to get the same kinds of response that other communities might get or that the perception of a natural disaster might allow. So I think it's a really important moment to think about all the ways in which kind of man-made takes on a variety of different expressions. Speaking of national parks, reporter Jesse Dukes headed to the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia to learn more about the park's beginnings. We included his story in the second backstory episode ever, and when we sat down to produce today's show, we thought it would be worth dusting off to listen again. Here's Jesse. This is maybe my 30th time visiting Shenandoah National Park, and usually when I come up here, I'm trying to remember what the world looks like without people or roads or houses. But this time, I'm with a park ranger, and we're looking for something specific. Well, striking out, this happens every time. The only problem is, we can't find it. It's not looking familiar? My guide is interpretive specialist Claire Comer, and she wants to show me a site where humans once lived. Well, and I know at this particular site, there's shoes, there's shovels. Before it was founded in 1936, Shenandoah National Park was just an idea. One that began in 1924 when the federal government decided we needed an eastern park. Something like Yellowstone or Yosemite, but closer to where all the people lived. It looks so different. Wealthy people from Washington were already visiting the Blue Ridge, most famously at Skyland Lodge. 
Skyland was a kind of dude ranch of the East where people could stay in rustic cabins, ride horses, or hunt. Its owner, George Pollock, saw a national park as a way to bring more visitors to the area, and he recruited some of his friends in government and business to the cause. So they filled out a nomination form and sent that in, and this was chosen as one of the sites to look at. The federal government had a specific idea of what a park should be. In the mold of Yellowstone and Yosemite, they wanted stunning beauty, sites for fishing and hiking, and access to roads. But most importantly, they wanted it to be a wilderness, free of human settlement and development. So the Virginians fudged a little bit on their application. They said that this area was pristine and free of inhabitations or developments. This, as they knew full well, was not true. Now look, there's a rock pile. And Claire has just found the proof of that. And there's the shoes. See? Yeah. An old pair of boots. What we've found is one of some 500 home sites that existed before there ever was a Shenandoah National Park. And evidently, something collapsed here. Maybe a chimney or, or something. But this one is not just any home site. This one belonged to the great-grandfather of Claire Comer. He actually lived in the valley below, and he paid tenant farmers to live up here and graze his cattle. And the nice thing about it is it stayed about 10 degrees cooler in the summer, so the cows were much more comfortable up here. You said something about driving the cattle up. Uh-huh. Like a cattle drive? Like yeah. drive them up into the mountains? Mm-hmm. Right so up they, Tanner's Ridge Road. That's amazing. So yeah. they would drive, what, like 50 cattle up right up into the oh, Blue Ridge? probably way more than that. Along with the thousands of farmers and ranchers in the mountains, there was also industry, mines, apple orchards, tan bark harvesting, lumbering. So in 1926, when the federal government okayed a future park, the Virginians had a problem. What were they going to do with all these people living in the mountains? Here's a, it's like an old canning jar. It just so happens that at the same time, sociologists and anthropologists had begun to focus their attention on the people living in remote mountain communities. The hollow dweller has no ordered routine of toil. He is unafflicted by the weariness of those doing the work of the world. This is scholar Nancy Martin Perdue reading me an excerpt of a book called Hollow Folk, written in 1933 by journalist Thomas Henry and sociologist Mandel Sherman. His affections are much closer to the animal level than in the population at large. Death of loved ones does not plunge him into the depths and darkness of grief which humanity has evolved. The people promoting the park didn't commission the so-called work of sociology. But they also didn't shy away from using this image of the backward mountaineer to forward the idea that the residents of the Blue Ridge should be removed. Not just because Virginia wanted a park, but that they should be removed for their own good. The claim was that these people were devolving in the mountains and needed to rejoin civilization. Mountain life not only does not tend to stimulate mental growth, but also acts as a handicap. The older the child, the less ambition he appears to have. In the end, the park promoters got their way, and in 1934, the state of Virginia decided that the people living in the 200,000 acres that was slated to become Shenandoah National Park had to leave. And people came in and moved them out, burned their house down in some cases, took their things, and carted them off to some other place. So, what's left behind up in these Blue Ridge Hills? Well... Nature enthusiasts, like me, and people working for the park, like Claire Comer. 
I want to see uh, the people that visit the park for the reason that it was established. They come here to hike, to recreate with their families, to feel some recreation through the recuperative powers of nature. But that's not all she wants them to feel. I want to simply make them aware of the sacrifice, that this did not come without cost to some people. Why couldn't you have a park that allowed people to stay? Well, I think, you know, you'd run into all kinds of things. If the park's purpose is to be where you can walk through virtual wilderness and experience nature, then what choices are you going to make about what they build and how they improve their homes as, the, as time goes on? You know, how do you museumify a group of people? You, you, you don't. Museumifying the land, on the other hand, now that's something we can all get behind, right? It's what the government was trying to do when it started creating national parks more than a century ago. And it's what's drawn me up to these mountains for years. I want to leave civilization behind, to spend time in a wild space that hasn't been shaped by humans. After this trip, it's going to be a little harder to experience it that way. When I got back to my car at this enormous clearing known as Big Meadows, I realized for the first time that it's not a natural meadow. Claire explained that it was probably cleared by Native Americans before they were displaced. Now, the park maintains the meadow pretty much as the Indians did, by mowing and burning. The hands of humans are all over this place. We just don't let them live here anymore. That's Jesse Dukes. He's now a producer for a show called Curious City out of WBEZ Chicago. Now, if you've ever visited Shenandoah National Park, chances are you spent some time taking in its grand views from the comfort of your car. Running north-south across the ridgeline through the entire 105-mile span of the park is the famous Skyline Drive. That drive is actually emblematic of the crucial role that driving has played in the development of national parks all over the country. Well, in 1935, the very same year that Shenandoah became a park, a group of outdoors enthusiasts concerned about this trend got together to fight it. One of them was a forester named Aldo Leopold. He called national parks vast, overcrowded hospitals coping with an epidemic of aesthetic rickets. That's my favorite Leopold quote. This is historian Paul Sutter. The point was that the automobile had created a kind of impetus to zip out into these wild places and experience them briefly and then just keep moving on. The group that Leopold and his fellow conservationists founded was called the Wilderness Society. In the tradition of John Muir, they believed that you had to take time to be in nature. You couldn't appreciate wilderness with a quick pit stop at scenic sites. You know, some of these were fairly sophisticated ecological thinkers, but they weren't necessarily concerned foremost about the ecological impacts of roads and automobiles. They were concerned about the ways in which roads and automobiles were driving the modern into even the most remote and wild spaces on the continent. And they wanted to protect some of those spaces from that kind of intrusion. What began as an effort by a few guys who wanted to tromp around in the woods in peace soon grew into a much more high-stakes endeavor. That's because by the 1940s, cars no longer seemed like the biggest threat. 
much more serious with the massive public works and resource extraction programs fueling America's wartime boom. And because the majority of these timbering, mining, and damming projects were taking place on federal lands, the Wilderness Society focused its efforts in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. They hired on a new public relations chief, a guy who worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service named Howard Zahnizer. Over the next two decades, Zahnizer dedicated himself to building a broad base of support for wilderness preservation, one that included urban Easterners, people, in other words, like himself. He was an advocate for wilderness areas, even if he knew he would never see them. And I think he, more than any of this early generation of wilderness advocates, made an argument for the importance of wilderness areas and just knowing that they're there, that in this world we live in, surrounded by all of this development, it's important to know that there are landscapes out there that are truly wild, that are places where humans can go and and really be surrounded by the forces of nature, humbled by them even. Zahnizer envisioned a new federal system that would designate and protect a network of public lands in advance of any threat so that activists wouldn't have to go to bat for specific areas each time they were threatened. In 1956, Zahnizer introduced the first draft of legislation that would do just that. And while opposition to this bill quickly materialized among mining, timber, and agricultural interests, Zahnizer's effort to win over the American public couldn't have come at a better time. America's post-war economic boom meant that people had more disposable time and more money on their hands. And at the same time, there was growing consensus that American life should be about more than simply the quest for wealth and power. When President Lyndon B. Johnson described his vision for a great society in 1964, he talked about a government that would help improve the quality of life in American cities, the quality of education in American schools, and the quality of the water, air, and land in America's countryside. Once the battle is lost, once our natural splendor is destroyed, it can never be recaptured. And once man can no longer walk with beauty or wonder at nature, his spirit will wither and his sustenance be wasted. Eight years, 18 congressional hearings, and 66 drafts after it was first introduced, Congress passed the Wilderness Act nearly unanimously, and President Johnson signed it into law in 1964. The Wilderness Bill preserves for our posterity, for all time to come, nine million acres of this vast continent in their original and unchanging beauty and wonder. Since then, those nine million acres have ballooned to 110 million. But over that time, the law's definition of the wild has remained consistent. Wilderness is a place, quote, untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. The law goes on to say that any wild place should have a, quote, primeval character and influence without permanent improvements or human habitation, which is protected and managed so as to preserve its natural conditions. And that, says science writer Emma Maris, is one big contradiction. The very notion of wilderness is a cultural concept. And the two parts of that that are enshrined in the act, the idea that wilderness is primeval 
and the idea that wilderness is untrammeled are our ideas about what counts as wilderness. The idea that it should look the same as it did in the old days and the idea that it should not have any human influence. Maris is among a group of contemporary ecological thinkers who says that it's not really possible to have untrammeled land and primeval land in the same place. You can't have uncontrolled and historically contiguous. If it looks like it did when Europeans first came to North America or when it was made uh, designated a wilderness, uh, then that's usually because there has been some management. Take Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone, of course, is a landscape that all Americans feel belongs to them, even if they've never been there. And people have a lot of really strong feelings about what it should look like. And most people want it to look like the way it did the year it was made a park, you know, back in the 1800s. So it is managed to look that way. And a lot of that work is somewhat obscured. As a tourist to the park, you don't really see that. You don't see how hard they worked reintroducing wolves and doing careful work with some of those streams and trying to get the beaver back. And I mean, they're working their butts off to make it look like nobody's touched it. And so there's a paradox there. If you really left Yellowstone alone, if you really let it go wild and just walked away from it, it might look like a very different place. But Mara says we couldn't really leave Yellowstone alone even if we tried. In the age of climate change, even places we think of as remote are being actively shaped by humans. If you said um, it's not wilderness if humans have influenced it, well then, there's no wilderness. Because even a place where no one has ever been, no one has ever stood there, it's still, there's still you know, 35% more carbon dioxide there because of our activities. The climate has still changed. So there really is no place that's uninfluenced by humans, and, and pretty much... No one is going to dispute this. So, if we want our land to look primeval, we have to get involved. We have to trammel it. On the other hand, if we decide our wilderness has to be untrammeled, it would mean letting it succumb to climate change and all the species loss that would entail. Maris thinks that true wildness is a threat to a lot of our so-called wilderness. And yet, Maris does see a value in wildness for its own sake. She envisions a new kind of wild space, one that is allowed to grow up in places where species aren't threatened, perhaps in certain post-industrial landscapes or abandoned farmland. These places would be completely untrammeled, without any active management at all. And they would be places where we could observe nature at work, a nature that, yes, includes the processes set in motion by humans. And change, something written out of the Wilderness Act of 1964, would be embraced as, well, natural. But what I don't know, and what I will be very interested to see, is which kind of land will inherit the title of wilderness. Will it be the land that looks the way it did back in the 1850s, when a lot of these places were first uh, mapped and surveyed? And, or will it be the places that are not managed, that are going to start looking very strange and interesting and, and with lots of non-native species? I don't know which one is going to get to be called wilderness in another 50 years. That was author and environmentalist Emma Maris. Her book is called Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. We also heard from Paul Sutter, history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. 
He's the author of Driven Wild, How the Fight Against Automobiles Launched the Modern Wilderness Movement. That's going to do it for today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, and we know you do, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, Bruce Wallace, and Robert Armengal. Our staff also includes Bridget McCarthy, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, and Diana Williams is our digital editor. Joey Thompson is our researcher. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.